She says, we don't even, can't even begin to know at what cost it came to you. So we say, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. We pray now, as we open your word, that you would give us even more insight into the death and the resurrection of Christ and what it means for our lives today and every day of the rest of our lives. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, and Father, I ask you to give me the words to say, your words for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you a little window into my soul here, maybe one that you don't want, but uh, a fear of mine. We should, we should just maybe pass around the microphone and everybody say their greatest fear in life. No, we, we're not going to do that today. But uh, one of the great fears in my life, not that I think about it all the time, but one of my fears is that I would be wrongly accused of committing a crime. That, you know, one day I'm just at home, maybe sitting on my couch, and, and there's a knock on the door, and it's the police. And they say, Eric Lee Ugarud? Yes? You're under arrest for the murder of such and such a person. Whoa, whoa, what? No, no, I didn't do it. And, you know, I don't think about these things often, but then I think, what would happen? You know, go through trial, and, you know, what if they just, somebody that looked like me committed the crime, and, and I was wrongly committed for doing it. And my microphone's not on yet either, is it? That's another one of my great fears in life, is that I would forget to turn my microphone on before, is it on now? Okay, good. All right. Well, good. See, that fear, I don't need to fear that. It's just a little simple, simple deal. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for helping me fix it. And then you just have to remind me to turn it on. You know. uh, okay. Yeah, one of my fears in life, being convicted of a crime that I didn't commit. Well, today we're going to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was put on trial, but he did not deserve to die. Jesus was put to death, not for any sins that he committed, but for our sins. We're going to look at a sermon in the book of Acts today. It's the Apostle Peter at the day of Pentecost, and that just means 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. So the Holy Spirit had come and filled the apostles with power, and then Peter goes on to preach basically an Easter sermon. So that's what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 2 today. And we had a Good Friday hymn sing in our church, but I, I just gave a little short message there. So what I'm going to do, do today is I'm going to cover the events of Good Friday and what I like to call Resurrection Sunday. It's, it's Easter Sunday, I know, but I kind of like the word Resurrection Sunday. So we're going to look at Good Friday, then Resurrection Sunday. And I want to I start with Acts 2, looking at verses 22 and 23. This is, again, the Apostle Peter speaking. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus was put on trial, but it was in many ways a mockery of a trial. There was one point in the Gospels where it says that the people who were giving their testimony against them, they couldn't even agree on the charges. They couldn't agree on their testimony. It was like they were just kind of throwing something against the wall and hoping that something was going to stick. Well, what was it that Jesus was put to death for? Certainly the Jewish leaders of his day wanted him dead. And Pilate was kind of of two minds about the deal, but he ended up giving his consent to Jesus' death. What was it that Jesus was was charged with and accused of and eventually put to death with. 
Well, to answer that question, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to flip over to Mark chapter 15. And I'm just going to read a few verses there, and then we'll get back to Acts. Mark 15, verses 1 through 2. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. What's Pilate's question? Are you the king of the Jews? It would be the important question of Jesus' trial. To the Jews, it was blasphemy. You see, they had watched Jesus during the three years of his public ministry claim to be the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. And and even through the things that he said, they picked up on the fact that he is God the Son. And to the Jews, they didn't believe it, and that was blasphemy. And they thought that he needed to die. So they handed him over to Pilate. And and for Pilate, it was a different story. He didn't care so much about the religious charge of it. He didn't care about the blasphemy charge. What he cared about was the treason. If, if this is a person who's claiming to be king, then he's setting himself up against Caesar. Because Israel was living underneath the thumb of the Romans at this time, and they were ruled by Caesar. So for Pilate, who was underneath the authority of Caesar, to be confronted with this man, who some say is claiming to be king, well, he has to do something about that. So Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response in verse 2, it's a little bit difficult to translate. In NIV it says, yes, it is as you say. And I actually think the more I've studied it this week that that's a good translation. That, that Jesus was saying, yes, the, the charges that are against me, they are accurate. That is who I am. And, and if you want a little bit more insight on that, I'd be glad to talk with you uh, why I've come to that conclusion. We're just not going to get into it right here, but, but I believe that Jesus was saying, yes, the charges against me, you're right. I am the king. He had said as much before, in fact, maybe it's on the same page in your Bible, in Mark 14, starting in the middle of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Christ is a term that means Messiah, and it was a title for the King of Israel. They asked him that question in verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Also on Palm Sunday, Jesus accepts the praises of the crowd who were calling him the Son of David. It was kingly language. We looked at that title, Son of David, last week. It was referencing a a passage in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 where God gave a promise to his people. He, He gave a promise to David saying, you will always have a descendant on the throne to reign forever. Remember we looked at those passages and I I urged you last week if you were here to make either a mental note or even to to circle it in your Bible, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. It's It's a passage of the Bible that you should know. It's a passage where God made a promise saying, forever descendant of David will reign. And now in the public ministry of Jesus, especially in the final week where we we saw the events of Palm Sunday and now the the death and resurrection, we see that coming to fulfillment, God bringing that forever king to the throne. So the, the charge against Jesus was being the king of the Jews. And actually... The evidence is pretty staggering. And and it wasn't just Jesus who knew this. It was the wise men too. Remember, at the birth of Jesus, they came from afar to see the king of the Jews. The New Testament clearly calls Jesus the king. In Revelation 17, 14, Jesus is the Lord of lords and king of kings. 
In Luke chapter 1, this is again at the birth of Jesus, what, what it says about him from the Father, it says, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. So Jesus was put on trial for being king. And kind of the ironic thing is, he actually is the king. Now as I said before, that, that idea was a threat to the Jews, and it was a threat to Pilate. Now there were other things going on, political and religious too, but the fact that Jesus was claiming and actually was the king was a threat to those people. Now, Pilate, like I said before, he kind of wavered on it. Actually, if you read Mark 15, three times in there he gave the people a chance to have Jesus back to, for him not to be put to death. But what did the, the chief priest and the crowd say? They said, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate tried to get them, you know, no, he, what, what crime is he guilty of? And the people just kept shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. And, and then, like I said, Pilate asked that question, why? What crime has he committed? It's an interesting question because when we look at it from our perspective we know that he didn't commit a crime. It wasn't his sins that he was dying for, it was ours. Even the thief on the cross next to him, remember that scene, Jesus was crucified in the middle and on each side of him there was a thief and one of the thieves, one of the thieves was hurling insults at Jesus and the other one said to him in, in Luke 23, 41, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. As Dan mentioned, Jesus could have stopped all of this. In Matthew 26, there's that, it's a time when Jesus is arrested, and uh, you know, Peter was trying to kind of man up there and stop the arrest from happening. And, and Jesus said, hey, Peter, don't you think that I could call on my father, and at once he would send more than 12 legions of angels and I said this on Good Friday, but I'll say it again. I, I just have to chuckle at this scene. Here's a, you know, a handful of soldiers with clubs and torches on one side and more than 12 legions of angels on the other side. Who's going to win that battle? That's what Jesus could have called there. But he went on to say, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus came to earth for a purpose. He came to be king, yes, but he also came to die for our sins. See, our sin separates us from God. I, I want you all to know this. I think in our day and age, we, we so easily forget this or we gloss over our sin. But our sin separates us from the holy, perfect God. Every single one of us, by sins that we have all committed, has earned a penalty that can only be paid by the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. There is nothing that we could do on our own to make it up to God. I think a lot of people have this opinion of sin that, oh, well, you know, you know I'm sure that I've messed up, but I'll, I'll try to do better next time. I'll make it up to God by, by proving to Him that that's not really who I am and that I can do better. And I think that a lot of people, they look at people around them too and they say, well, you know, my sins aren't that bad. Maybe they look at the person next to them or the, the person in jail and they say, well, I, I didn't do what he did. I'm not that bad. So I think that maybe God will, will look at me and he'll let me into heaven because I'm not that bad. Well, let me say it this way. Jesus didn't die on the cross because we weren't all that bad. He died on the cross because we are all that bad. Every single one of us had a death penalty against us 
due to our sin. Nothing we could do about it. We all need to be rescued. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus was on that trial and put to death. And in Mark 15 it says that Pilate had Jesus flogged and sent him to be crucified. That flogging was a serious beating. The ESV has this footnote. If you have an ESV Bible, you can find this at the bottom of your page probably. It says that that scourging was a Roman judicial penalty consisting of a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip containing embedded pieces of bone and metal. Some people died just from that flogging alone. And that's what Jesus faced before he carried his own cross and was nailed to it and was left there to die. Now for Pilate and the Romans, that was usually the end of the story. You got a criminal, you nail him to a cross, and they die. But we all know that that's not the end of the story. It's not even close to the end of the story. You know who else knew that? King David. And I want to go back to Acts 2 now, and I want to read verses 24 through 28. Again, this is Peter speaking about Jesus. He says in verse 24, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter quotes David. It says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter was quoting David's psalm, Psalm 16, which many of you know is a favorite of mine. And when you first look at that, like I first looked at that psalm, I thought that David was talking about himself. I thought that David was just talking about the, the blessings that God was pouring out on his life. But Peter picks up on one interesting thing that we need to note here in verse 27, where it says, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Peter explains what's going on there in verse 29. So we're, this, these are Peter's words now, referencing David's words. In 29 he says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. It's like Peter is saying, that, that psalm is not talking about David, and it, if you want me to prove it to you, we could just go on a quick field trip over to David's tomb. We could go over there, we could open it up, and we could see his bones. David died, and his body saw decay. This verse... These verses are not about David. Let's see who they were about, reading verses 30 and 32. Again, this is Peter speaking. But he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to light, and we are all witnesses of the fact. David wrote a psalm that is a prophecy about the resurrection of the Messiah. Verse 30, it reminds us again of the promise. That's the promise that we looked at last week when we looked at that, that son of David passage in 2 Samuel 7 where God promised that, that David would always have a descendant on the throne forever. And Peter reminds us in Acts 2.24 that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, on Jesus. You see, this was God's plan from eternity past. He knew that we would be sinners and that we would need to be rescued, that we would need a Savior. So God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and to win the victory over sin and death and the devil. 
God has power to bring life. God has power over death. And as I was thinking about that this week, I just wanted to throw in a little side note here. The fact that God has power over death and the power to give life should give us hope in whatever we're going through. If you're going through a difficult time right now or if you've recently lost a loved one or you know, if you just found out that you got cancer, whatever it is that comes our way in life, we who know Christ have the hope of heaven. We who have Christ know that the final answer is not death or cancer or pain because God has promised us a place where there will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain or sin or curse. And that is a real reality for us. That yes, we may have to endure something here for a while, but the Bible says that our lives are like a mist. They're here today and gone tomorrow. We're like the grass of the field. And heaven is a reality. So if we're going through something difficult, take courage and know that God has a plan to make everything new. The God who raised Christ from the dead also wants to give us that eternal life. God has won a victory. The grave could not contain Jesus. There is no way for it to happen. And because Jesus has won a victory over death, we can know the path of life that David talked about. We can't earn that kind of life on our own. That, that kind of life can only be given to us by God. Allow me to read on. Verses 33 to 35. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning with the Father forever. And then look what else it says about Jesus in verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that is a power-packed verse. That might be another one you might want to underline. Which I don't know why I'm telling you to underline all these verses. I don't underline in my Bible, but uh, you can if you want to. It's a great one. Lord and Christ. Now, the word Lord itself is just loaded with meaning here. In fact, one of the things that you should know about this specific use of the word Lord is that it's, it's deep with Trinitarian meaning. That this is the divine name of God. So you think about the, the divine name of God revealed in the Old Testament, used for the Father. That's the name used for Jesus here in the New Testament. So people who don't want to acknowledge the Trinity, I don't know how they get around this one. Because Jesus is Lord. He has given that title. And then he's also given the title of Christ. And Christ isn't just his last name. Like my last name is Ugarud. It's not like Jesus M. Christ or whatever. No. His <laughs> Christ is a title that means Messiah. And Messiah means that he's the king of Israel. It means he's the one that God had prophesied about thousands of years ago. He is that forever king that we talked about in 2 Samuel 7. So here's what it comes down to then. Jesus was put on trial for being king. And you know what? He is king. So they came to the right verdict that day. Jesus really is king. They, they just gave him the wrong sentence. He sh they shouldn't have crucified him. Now obviously it was God's plan and that we can get into a whole debate about, you know, did it have to happen? That Well, of course, it, it did have to happen that Jesus would die for us. But Jesus said, woe to them. You know, or, 
the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. I want to wrap up my sermon now by talking about how this all should matter to us. The point that I've been trying to make so far is that Jesus was killed for being king. And the fact is, he is king. And the question that I want to ask you now, and it's my big idea for today, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? This is a question that Jesus asked his disciples long before his death. You see, during the the years of Jesus' public ministry, he did all these miracles, all this this healing of people who were sick and had diseases. He gave this wonderful spiritual teaching. And people started to wonder, who is this guy? So Jesus kind of grabbed his disciples aside and said to them in Matthew 16 and 15, who do you say I am? And Peter gave a wonderful answer in the next verse. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gave his confession. He believed in Jesus. And he proved that allegiance by continuing to follow Jesus. But with the exception of that time when Jesus was arrested and Peter denied him three times, you can look at Peter's life and you can see, yeah, he really did believe that Jesus is king. He really gave his life for what he believed. The truth of who Jesus was deeply affected Peter's life. It changed who he was. Well, what about us? Who do you say that Jesus is? How should we respond to the fact that Jesus is king? Well, I want to I reread for you verse 36 and then go into verse 37. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, we preachers dream of this happening when we preach sermons that people are cut to the heart. And that's what happened here. Peter was simply retelling the events of what had happened to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And the people were like, whoa, what do we do? And Peter gave his response in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, that has everything to do with salvation. Because to receive Jesus Christ is to be forgiven of our sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence within us. So Peter said, repent and be baptized and you'll have salvation. Now, to repent means that we turn from our own ways and we follow God. I like to think of it as a word picture here where I've picked my own ways. I'm walking in my own ways. I'm living my own life according to the way that I want to do it. I'm going this way. To repent then is to turn around, to look at God and say, God, what do you want me to do? And then I follow him. I walk on the path that he has for me. To repent means that we flee from a life of sin. It means that we no longer live for our own ways or for sin, but that we live for Jesus. That's what it means to repent. And then Peter also mentioned baptism here. He said, repent and be baptized. Why baptism? Well, baptism was a sign. It was a declaration of of somebody saying, I follow Jesus Christ. And following Jesus is where this passage is headed. We're not going to look at the end of Acts 2 in my sermon today, but if we were, we would see that the people who proclaimed that they were following Jesus that day the next days and years devoted themselves to things like the teaching of the apostles and prayer and fellowship with each other. 
you see, for them, believing in Jesus, it wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, I'll, I'll take that get-out-of-hell-free card from you, thanks, and then we'll you know, see it in 73 years, okay? <laughs> for them, coming to know Jesus meant that they followed him. It meant that they gave their allegiance to him. So what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he Lord? Is he King? The Jewish leaders in the crowd were faced with that question. And what was their response? They said, crucify him. Crucify him. And when you think about it, there's really only two responses that we could have to Jesus. Either we receive him as Lord and Savior and King, or we reject him. Either we give our lives to him and follow him and live for him the rest of our lives, or we side with those who said, crucify him. At the end of the day, those are the only two options. Now, I realize that some of you might be in process here. Some of you might be still considering who Jesus is, and that's legitimate. I think that, that God does allow for us to, to think through the implications of that, to, to search the scriptures, to figure out if what it actually says is true. But let me just urge you to come to your conclusion about who Jesus is. Because every one of us is headed for judgment. Every one of us is going to have to stand before the Lord. Every one of us is going to, you know, they, the way it goes sometimes, they say you stand at the gates of heaven and you wonder if you go in. Every one of us is going to have to stand before God and the only thing that's going to matter then is Jesus your Lord and Savior and King. Or did you side with those who rejected him and said that he deserved to die? Like I said, I want to urge you to make your decision soon on that. I am convinced the fact of the matter that Jesus Christ is King, that He died for our sins because He loves us and He wants to spend eternity with us. And He's calling out to you to come home. Maybe some of you right now are feeling God tapping you on your heart. I want to tell you a little bit of my story of how I felt God tapping me on my heart. I was about 15 years old and I was listening to a preacher and I remember the verse he was talking about, Revelation 3.20. It's a verse where Jesus is speaking and he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. That door is like the door of our heart and Jesus is, is tapping on it, wanting to come in. There's a famous painting about that verse. It's it's Jesus standing by a door and, and knocking. And somebody went up to the artist and said, hey, there's a mistake with your painting. There's no handle on that door. And, and the artist said, no, no, that wasn't a mistake. said, there's no handle on there because the handle is on the inside. There's a famous saying about Jesus that Jesus is a gentleman. He wants to come into our hearts, but he's not going to barge his way in. That we must have a response of faith to him. The Bible is very clear about that, that God calls us, that God does the work of salvation. Like I said before, there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. But when we feel God tapping on our heart, when we understand His great love for us and how we need Him for the forgiveness of our sins, the response that God asks for from us is a response of faith, that we would open that door, that we would receive Jesus Christ and invite him to take his rightful place as Lord and King of our lives. And when I heard that message and understood it, I was convinced. I said, God, if that's the relationship that you want with me, 
where you come in and you forgive me and you cleanse me and you lead me into a new life now and give me eternal life for eternity. If that's what you want for me, God, of course, I give my life to you. But even as I was saying that, I recognized that it was going to cost something. I recognized that I was giving up control of my life. And I was actually scared that God was going to make me be a missionary in Africa. That's, I, I remember having these two strong thoughts in my mind. Of course, God, I want you. I want this relationship with you. But you're not going to make me go to Africa, are you? Fortunately, I only had to go to Turkey to be, an Af- uh, to be a missionary, so not Africa. The fact is that Jesus is king. And he desperately wants a relationship with us. And like I said, if you feel God tapping on your heart right now, the right response is to invite him. Invite him in. Confess your sins. Ask him to be Lord and Savior. My sermon today began with Jesus on trial. And the outcome of the trial is eternally fixed. Jesus is king. If you say that Jesus is king, good. How do we prove that we mean it? We prove it then by following him for the rest of our lives. See, I knew that. When I was giving my heart to Jesus, I knew that I I couldn't take it back. I knew that I was his. I knew that it meant that I would follow him. So each day then, I, I rely on his strength to lead me into what's right. The response that Jesus wants from us today is to repent and to follow. 23 times in the New Testament, Jesus said, follow me. Why do you think he said it so many times? I think it's because he meant it. I think it's because he wants us to follow him. And the fact is that Jesus is still alive. Jesus still leads and he still wants us to follow him. Some of you gave your hearts to Jesus many, many, many years ago. And my message for you today is to continue to follow him. Continue to recognize him as the king and lord of your life. Continue to submit to him and to walk with him daily, trusting in his strength to get you through whatever it is that he allows you to go through. It's a wonderful message of life that is a life we can't earn for ourselves. It's a life that he gives to us and we follow him in it. And if there's any of you, even if it's just one of you in here today, that is wondering whether you've ever opened your heart to Jesus, then it's worth it for all of us to take the time here just to urge you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And what I'm going to do in just a minute here is I'm going to close in prayer. And if there are any of you who would like to ask Jesus into your heart, you can do it by praying and by asking him. Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord. He died for our sins, but he reigns victorious. Will you follow him? Would you pray with me? And again, I'm going to start off my prayer here. If there are any of you that would like to ask Jesus into your heart, you can repeat after me the first part of this prayer. God, I love you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. Please forgive me of all of my sins. I pray that Jesus would be my Savior and my Lord. I invite him to take his rightful place as King of my life. Please come into me. Help me to be the person you created me to be and to live the life you want me to live.
And then if, if anybody did that, I just, while our eyes are closed here, if anybody did that, I just ask that maybe you'd raise your hand even right now just so we could see. Just okay. And Father, for all of us here, we just are so grateful for this day, this Easter day, this Resurrection Sunday where we remember the victory. The victory has been won for thousands of years now, and God, we look forward to living in that victory for the rest of our lives. Today, Lord, we pray for strength from you. We pray for our daily bread. That you would help us, that you would strengthen us for all that you have for us today. And that we would walk by faith. And that we would honor you in all that you do. In all that we do. Thank you for this new life. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.